This evening's talk is about transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning with a quote, it's from a Zen teacher. I don't actually know who it's from. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. A number of years ago now, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response uh, to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or efflictive emotions. And all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of Nibbana, being a complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind and the heart of an arahant, a com- totally, completely enlightened human being. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've practiced with the Venerable Sayadaw Upandita and with the Venerable Palak Sayadaw, both of these teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course in the suttas, the Buddha also speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in a similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, purification of the heart, here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to really directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree, We've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, 
of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience, that they're more and more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so a feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices begins to take, take a deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice, in the immediacy of the very here and now, it grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha the heart, the mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages those heading towards suffering to really take care and to pay attention rather than judging them, rather than condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there certainly have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself and in relationship to the teachings and the practices. And when I've been able to be really honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's really been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teaching through my practice. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has very much deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach 
things with the attitude that we can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once, in a practice interview with him some years ago, I went in and I said, this is too hard. It's just too hard. And Pahak Sayadaw looked at me uh, with a great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter in response. And he simply said, no, it isn't. (laughs) No, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are really filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them work with them within our practice in the light of purification. In the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from an idealistic or philosophical stance. So these so-called skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, it's a long list. From our present life, experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experiences. And some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind and open heart. Some of them we've probably ignored and hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away the so-called skeletons in the closet. And very important, it's not about dredging up, it's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Most all of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life or we'll just keep living in delusion, meaning thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and 
look into the boxes, we could say, to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and kind of buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we may have been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly, maybe for a long time. The writer Stephen Mitchell uh, has a version of the myth of Sisyphus that speaks to this in uh, quite an interesting and inspiring way. And this is his, these are his words. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools, the tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion, each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness, grounded in kindness, in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, the possibility to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or to fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with the seeming, seeming equanimity, the kind of, oh, it's really nothing sort of attitude. We begin to realize that, in fact, none of these reactive patterns serve us. (laughs) When we begin to meet and to see these reactive habit patterns with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, or seeing through, as I like to describe the experience is opened.
the beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of really clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing that this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered, so to say. And we begin to find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 or 30 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, without giving it continued power over us. This is really our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what's concealed, what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be really free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk, Venerable Bhante Gunaratana, in his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, says this. View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill, he says. Rejoice. Dive in and investigate. Investigate, and I add, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted and clearly seen. And this takes time. We really can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with great patience or growing great patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is rooted in fear. And this can kind of be a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and relinquishing, letting go of our conditioned habitual patterns of suffering.
relinquishing what I think is fair to call our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says this, he said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them, watch them, observe, inquire, let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is uh, very directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotional states. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus it's conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet often we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We maybe grasp onto the past. We project into the possible future and often solidify both in our mind. And yet, life just keeps rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in northern New Mexico, and specifically speaking about Taos, During the midsummer and early fall, we have uh, what we call our monsoon season. And during this monsoon season, in this big open sky here in Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often double rainbows appearing. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. So there's just the right amount of moisture 
in the atmosphere. The angle of light is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes very, very quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, mind, and heart, are really like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and most quickly get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind, as permanent, as unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree with which to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is, right now, right now, and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We have a saying in English that says, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. They're definitely not dependent on each other. With ignorance, in fact, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or an absence of true understanding. And it's experienced as what's called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion, 
caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're really just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now um, with exploring a few of the hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often can appear in the guise or disguise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like I can't be with or I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or this old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or this pain in the body, or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe there's a feeling of being kind of frozen, really stuck, caught, or just simply unable to open and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment and maybe blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we really believe it, it's his fault. It's because she, it's because they. And then the fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, feelings maybe of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. And we did look at perfection in one of the reflections uh, in the morning some days ago. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, or blaming and criticism inwardly in relationship to ourselves or outwardly or maybe both in relationship to others, which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the 
fear that's lurking underneath. I think that many of us are often afraid of the fear. Afraid to really look directly at it. Especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found out that it might not be so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in and fearfully reported the experience of fear to him, he said his response was, well, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this from him, my inner response, I didn't say this out loud, but my inner response was, well, that's really easy for you to say. So obviously there was some resistance and and a fair amount of irritation in, in that thought. But he was my dear teacher, and so I did take it in. And eventually, took a while, but eventually I began to see that, yes, fear is just fear. can be a strong, intense experience, but it's just fear. As we gently persevere in our mindfulness-based practices and our concentration practices, rooted in kindness towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to be able to come close to it, to look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, not be shut off, not be so shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger, and as our mind and heart gets stronger, and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to really acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. Not me. Not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we may see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never, ever see. And I say, as I said it, we all know, it can be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine. It's not something solid. It's not something permanent. And that's very helpful to really begin to know that. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. 
We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it more and more clearly. See through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. Sometime within the past uh, year or two, I read a National Geographic story (coughs) about uh, two mountain climbers. A woman, a 40-year-old woman named Garland, uh, who was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. Her husband was also a mountain climber. He didn't actually make it to the top. She did, though. And they spoke in this article, they each spoke about fear. So I'd like to just uh, brief quotes from each of them. His name was Ralph, and her name was Garland. Ralph's uh, description, or his speaking of fear, he said, He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. Garland also spoke about fear. Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. This woman, Garland, was a practicing Buddha, Buddhist, and uh, when she got to the top of K2, she had a little Buddha in her backpack, and she set a little statue of the Buddha right on top of K2. The Buddhist teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than most than the way that most all of us have been conditioned, the way that we've been patterned. And of course, it doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. What happens? Well, they just reappear. And putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities keeping the possibility of purification the possibility of transformation at bay and of course it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions this is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit pattern Nor, again, as I said before, nor is the practice about purposefully dredging up and then miring analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can really color our entire experience when we're caught, when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. 
with a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience, or without desiring it to be different. In specifically practicing samatha or concentration, or metta, these same principles apply, though the investigation itself may not necessarily be as extensive. It may not be as extensive as it can be in with vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it can actually be quite seductive. Quite some years ago, I uh, knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine people would begin to get close to her. And then they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of the needles of her anger. And they would move away from her. She was actually a very lonely person. And yet she was so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, in this case meaning lose her energy and lose her power, lose the fuel for her life, as she described it, if she let go of anger. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the angry person, the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective just vanish. One often feels restless and driven, nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large as does the sense of the other. I think one of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though there's kind of a line drawn, an invisible line that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that 
irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger in our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger isn't solid. It's made up of many, many different components, thoughts and stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as we see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear, self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to try to let these stories go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I sometimes say. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger or the other states, any of the other difficult states. They're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer to the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. So what might you be feeling with anger? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? And notice the mind. Meaning at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction then. Really give this your best attention. Feel it. Sense it. See it. Know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body. Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. 
You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with the walking. Or you might go outside, maybe walk outside or just go outside and open up to the natural world out there. The expanse of the field across the street. The trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really take an interest. Notice the birds, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, (coughs) afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is really amazing, really beyond compare in a kind of quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remembering the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And again, the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often um, taught in dialogue with his students, The student asked a question. He said, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, don't cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain, and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, which can be quite a lot of energy, it doesn't disappear. The energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence, that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, maybe such as maybe power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. 
So now we'll spend just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed really being the root of the current worldwide economic and environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. And this all is rooted in in desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be content, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't, that, in fact, it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. So, for instance, it's in part what got you here on retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer or a personal practice that I was told uh, was um, uh, Mother Teresa's practice. Someone sent it to me in the mail. (coughs) And this is it. I'll read it just the way it came. The first line is, Deliver me, O Jesus, although I changed it to Deliver me, O Dhamma. Uh, Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She didn't leave any anything out, I don't think. Very shortly after I uh, received this and read it, I had a phone call from a friend, and I was quite excited about this prayer, this practice. I said, oh, I have to read something to you. So I read it to this person over the phone, and his response was, 
Oh my God, have I got a lot to do. Well, true. We do. We have a lot to do. But I really find this prayer, every time I read it again, I find it very inspiring. I think many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous uh, amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe that's happened to you here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you had on your last retreat or five years ago on a retreat. It's the contraction, it's the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that's the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a very simple, um, quite mundane personal experience Some years ago I was um, teaching at a retreat center here in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful flower gardens I've had ever seen, I've ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from. It was a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something, and do something else. But all I wanted to do was just stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not willing to let go and to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body, a kind of degree of burning irritation in the heart and the mind. Well, I did get up and I I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But I was still caught. I was still clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it as I was walking along. I was wanting it back. And I was planning, planning when I could go back to that garden, imagining just how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment before had been a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind. It was really a moment of suffering. 
And it happens very quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. They can't exist together at the same time. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire, as I've mentioned. And for many people, there's often some confusion, really delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment, that it feels good. And it's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and know it very clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. He said the eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning, the ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. And then he goes on through each of the six sense doors in the same way. And then he says, Burning of what? And he answers his question. Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. A number of years ago now, I found a recipe uh, that was from a man named um, (coughs) Fred Moramarco. Uh, at risk of giving you a recipe <clears throat> that you might already have and maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this recipe with you. The ingredients. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. <clears throat> the ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. Four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with this ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview 
and process in food processor using on and off turns. When the mixture is pureed, add to it, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And kind of the same teaching, but from a very different perspective, by the Chinese sage Nan Shen. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them clearly just as they are. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see right through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. And one way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. From a teaching from the Mahayana, from the Vimalakirti Sutra, says this, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions, so to say. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we, we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these so-called poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the nectars or Buddha wisdoms. 
afflictive emotions, or as the Buddha often called them, cankers, are transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotion, emotional states can are digested into wisdom. So just for a moment now, looking at just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting or transforming into the heart of metta, and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in the mind and heart, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. And as our practice goes on over time, We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. In closing this evening's talk with a poem, it's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. And some of you may know Hokusai was a Japanese painter. And his most famous painting is that of a great huge wave. And as the wave is up and over in the the sea, beneath the sort of menacing-looking fingers of the wave is a boat with uh, some fishermen in it. his most famous painting. That's how most people know him. The poem's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. 
He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.